0: Dear advertisers, I am disgusted with the way old people are depicted on television. We are not all vibrant, fun-loving sex maniacs. Many of us are bitter, resentful individuals who remember the good old days when entertainment was bland and inoffensive. When I read your magazine, I don't see one wrinkled face or single toothless grin. For shame. To the Sickos at Modern Bride magazine. Hello, and welcome to podcast number four here on The Voice of the Arts. I'm Joe Weber, your host, and that was the voice of Abraham Simpson, the father of Homer Simpson and the grandfather of Lisa, Bart, and Maggie, expressing some of the frustration at being an aged man in a world that worships youth. Today's podcast is about age and aging, with readings of poetry and a Flannery O'Connor short story. I'm 74 years old, and despite many advances in modern medicine, I'm weaker, slower, and less likely to remember people's names when I am introduced than I was a few years ago. This process of aging is like gravity. It never rests. The notion that 60 is really the new 40 just means that baby boomers have given themselves license to act like overgrown adolescents. I sometimes check the news online at CNN.com, and there, in addition to the day's top story, along with a list and photographs of celebrities with unattractive spouses, is a story about some man or woman who is a centenarian who still runs five miles and swims one mile every day. That's all well and good. Fitness is important, but it has become our new secular religion in the United States. We worship youth and the young and pay reverence to the precocious. Many of our local symphonies in decline would be in a freefall toward insolvency if it weren't for some 11-year-old violinist or pianist who can bring out a crowd. Though there is a substantial cultural gulf between Abe Simpson and William Butler Yeats, They both share some of the anxieties of aging. Yeats' famous poem, Sailing to Byzantium, begins with the line, that is no country for old men, but has precious little to do with the Coen brothers' film of the same name and the psychopathic killer and the device for killing cattle. Sailing to Byzantium by William Butler Yeats That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees. Those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing and louder sing, for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school but stunning monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the seas, and come to the holy city of Byzantium. O sage, standing in God's holy fire as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the holy fire, burn in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fasten to a dying animal. It knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. Once out of nature I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enameline, to keep a drowsy emperor awake or set upon a golden bough to sing, to lords and ladies of Byzantium, of what is past or passing or to come. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, Late Encounter with the Enemy, we're introduced to General Tennessee Poker Sash, who fought in the Civil War. Well, most likely he was really a foot soldier, but he was given a general's uniform at the premiere of a famous Hollywood film and has since donned that uniform for various public functions. As the story begins, he is now at the age of 104 years old and has no more comprehension that he's going to die than a cat. His granddaughter, with whom he lives, is soon to graduate with a teaching degree after almost 40 years of teaching. She is looking forward to that graduation, especially knowing that she will bask in the reflected glory of her grandfather being on that stage as an honoree when she receives her diploma. In her mind, that will show all those upstarts from elsewhere, what all is behind her. The Late Encounter with the Enemy by Flannery O'Connor. General Sash was 104 years old. He lived with his granddaughter, Sally Poker Sash, who was 62 years old, and who prayed every night on her knees that he would live until her graduation from college. The general didn't give two slaps for her graduation, but he never doubted he would live for it. Living had got to be such a habit with him that he couldn't conceive of any other condition. A graduation exercise was not exactly his idea of a good time, even if, as she said, he would be expected to sit on the stage in his uniform. She said there would be a long procession of teachers and students in their robes, but that there wouldn't be anything to equal him in his uniform. He knew this well enough without her telling him, and as for the damn procession, it could march to hell and back and not cause him a quiver. He liked parades with floats full of Miss Americas and Miss Daytona Beaches and Miss Queen Cotton products. He didn't have any use for processions, and a procession full of schoolteachers was about as deadly as the river sticks to his way of thinking. However, he was willing to sit on the stage in his uniform so they could see him. Sally Poker was not as sure as he was that he would live until her graduation. There had not been any perceptible change in him for the last five years, but she had the sense that she might be cheated out of her triumph because she so often was. She had been going to summer school every year for the past 20 because when she started teaching, there were no such things as degrees. In those times, she said, everything was normal, but nothing had been normal since she was 16, and for the past 20 summers, When she should have been resting, she had had to take a trunk in the burning heat to the state teacher's college. And though when she returned in the fall, she always taught in the exact way she had been taught not to teach, this was a mild revenge that didn't satisfy her sense of justice. She wanted the general at her graduation because she wanted to show what she stood for, or as she said, what all was behind her and was not behind them. This them was not anybody in particular. It was just all the upstarts who had turned the world on its head and unsettled the ways of decent living. She meant to stand on that platform in August with a general sitting in his wheelchair on the stage behind her, and she meant to hold her head very high as if she were saying, See him. See him. My kin, all you upstarts glorious upright old man standing for the old traditions dignity honor courage see him one night in her sleep she screamed see him see him and turned her head and found him sitting in his wheelchair behind her with a terrible expression on his face and with all his clothes off except the general's hat and she had waked up and had not dared to go back to sleep again that night for his part, the general would not have consented even to attend her graduation if she had not promised to see to it that he sit on the stage. He liked to sit on any stage. He considered that he was still a very handsome man. When he had been able to stand up, he had measured 5 feet 4 inches of pure game cock. He had white hair that reached to his shoulders behind, and he would not wear teeth because he thought his profile was more striking without them. When he put on his full-dress general's uniform, he knew well enough that there was nothing to match him anywhere. This was not the same uniform he had worn in the war between the states. He had not actually been a general in that war. He had probably been a foot soldier. He didn't remember what he had been. In fact, he didn't remember that war at all. It was like his feet, which hung down now shriveled at the very end of him without feeling, covered with a blue-gray afghan that Sally Poker had crocheted when she was a little girl. He didn't remember the Spanish-American War in which he had lost his son. He didn't even remember the son. He didn't have any use for history because he never expected to meet it again. To his mind, history was connected with processions and life with parades, and he liked parades. People were always asking him if he remembered this or that, a dreary black procession of questions about the past. There was only one event in the past that had any significance for him and that he cared to talk about. That was 12 years ago when he had received the general's uniform and had been in the premiere. "'I was in that preemie they had in Atlanta,' he would tell visitors sitting on his front porch, "'surrounded by beautiful girls. It wasn't a thing local about it. It was nothing local about it. Listen here. It was a national event, and they had me in it, up onto the stage.' There was no bobtails at it. Every person at it had paid $10 to get in and had to wear a tuxedo. I was in this uniform. A beautiful girl presented me with it that afternoon in a hotel room. It was in a suite in the hotel, and I was in it too, Papa, Sally Poker would say, winking at the visitors. You weren't alone with any young lady in a hotel room. If I was, I'd have known what to do, the old general would say with a sharp look, and the visitors would scream with laughter. This was a Hollywood, California girl, he'd continue. She was from Hollywood, California, and didn't have any part in the picture. Out there, they got so many beautiful girls that they don't need that they call them an extra, and they don't use them for nothing but presenting people with things and having their pictures taken. They took my picture with her. No, it was two of them, one on either side and me in the middle with my arms around each of them's waist, and their waist wasn't any bigger than a half dollar. Sally Poker would interrupt again. It was mister Gavinsky that gave you the uniform, papa, and he gave me the most exquisite corsage. Really, I wish you could have seen it. It was made with gladiola petals taken off and painted gold and put back together to look like a rose. It was exquisite. I wish you could have seen it. It was it was as big as her head, the general would snarl. I was telling it. They gimme this uniform and they gimme this sword and they say Now, General, we don't want you to start a war on us. All we want you to do is march right up on that stage when you're introduced tonight and answer a few questions. Think you can do that? Think I could do it? I say, listen here, I was doing things before you were born, and they hollered. He was the hit of the show, Sally Poker would say. But she didn't much like to remember the premiere on account of what happened to her feet at it. She had bought a brand new dress for the occasion, a long black crepe dinner dress with a rhinestone buckle and a bolero and a pair of silver slippers to wear with it because she was supposed to go up on the stage with him to keep him from falling. Everything was arranged for them. A real limousine came at ten minutes to eight and took them to the theater. It drew up under the marquee at exactly the right time after the big stars and the director and the author and the governor and the mayor and some less important stars all the people who couldn't go watched them step out of the limousine into the lights. Then they walked down the red and gold foyer and an usherette in a confederate cap and a little short skirt conducted them to their special seats. The audience was already there and a group of UDC members began to clap when they saw the general in his uniform and that started everybody clapping. A few more celebrities came after them and then the doors closed and the lights went down. A young man with blonde, wavy hair who said he represented the motion picture industry came out and began to introduce everybody. And each one who was introduced walked up on the stage and said how really happy he was to be here for this great event. The general and his granddaughter were introduced 16th on the program. He was introduced as General Tennessee Flint Rock Sash of the Confederacy, though Sally Poker had told Mr. Govinsky that his name was George Poker Sash and that he had only been a major. She helped him up from his seat, but her heart was beating so fast she didn't know whether she'd make it herself. The old man walked up the aisle slowly with his fierce white head high and his hat held over his heart. The orchestra began to play the Confederate battle hymn very softly, and the UDC members rose as a group and did not sit down again until the general was on the stage. When he reached the center of the stage, with Sally Poker just behind him, guiding his elbow. The orchestra burst out in a loud rendition of the battle hymn, and the old man with real stage presence gave a vigorous trembling salute and stood at attention until the last blast had died away. Two of the usherettes in Confederate caps and short skirts held a Confederate and a Union flag crossed behind them. The general stood in the exact center of the spotlight, and it caught a weird moon-shaped slice of Sally Poker, the corsage, the rhinestone buckle, and one hand clenched around a white glove and handkerchief. The young man with a blonde wavy hair inserted himself into the circle of light and said he was really happy to have here tonight for this great event, one, he said, who had fought and bled in the battles they would soon see daringly reenacted on the screen. And tell me, General, he asked, how old are you? 92 the general screamed the young man looked as if this were just about the most impressive thing that had been said all evening ladies and gentlemen he said let's give the general the biggest hand we've got and there was applause immediately and the young man indicated to sally poker with a motion of his thumb that she could take the old man back to his seat now so that the next person could be introduced but the general had not finished He stood immovable in the exact center of the spotlight, his neck thrust forward, his mouth slightly open, and his voracious gray eyes drinking in the glare and the applause. He elbowed his granddaughter roughly away. How I keep so young, he screeched. I kiss all the pretty girls. This was met with a great din of spontaneous applause, and it was just at that instant that Sally Poker looked down at her feet and discovered that in the excitement of getting ready, She had forgotten to change her shoes. Two brown Girl Scout Oxfords protruded from the bottom of her dress. She gave the general a yank and almost ran with him off the stage. He was very angry that he had not got to say how glad he was to be here for this event. And on the way back to his seat, he kept saying as loud as he could, ''I'm glad to be here at this preemie with all these beautiful girls.'' but there was another celebrity going up the other aisle and nobody paid any attention to him. He slept through the picture, muttering fiercely every now and then in his sleep. Since then, his life had not been very interesting. His feet were completely dead now. His knees worked like old hinges. His kidneys functioned when they would, but his heart persisted doggedly to beat. The past and the future were the same thing to him, one forgotten and the other not remembered. He had no more notion of dying than a cat. Every year on Confederate Memorial Day, he was bundled up and lent to the Capital City Museum, where he was displayed from one to four in a musty room full of old photographs, old uniforms, old artillery, and historic documents. All these were carefully preserved in glass cases so that children would not put their hands on them. He wore his general's uniform from the premiere and sat with a fixed scowl inside a small roped area. There was nothing about him to indicate that he was alive except an occasional movement in his milky gray eyes. But once, when a bold child touched his sword, his arm shot forward and slapped the hand off in an instant. In the spring, when the old homes were opened for pilgrimages, he was invited to wear his uniform and sit in some conspicuous spot and lend atmosphere to the scene. Some of these times he only snarled at the visitors, but sometimes he told about the premiere and the beautiful girls. If he had died before Sally Poker's graduation, she thought she would have died herself. At the beginning of the summer term, even before she knew if she would pass, she told the dean that her grandfather, General Tennessee Flintrock Sash of the Confederacy, would attend her graduation, and that he was 104 years old and that his mind was still clear as a bell. Distinguished visitors were always welcome and could sit on the stage and be introduced. She made arrangements with her nephew, John Wesley Sash, a Boy Scout, to come wheel the General's chair. She thought how sweet it would be to see the old man in his courageous gray and the young boy in his clean khaki. The old and the new, she thought appropriately. They would be behind her on the stage when she received her degree. Everything went almost exactly as she had planned. In the summer, while she was away at school, the general stayed with other relatives, and they brought him and John Wesley, the Boy Scout, down at the graduation. A reporter came to the hotel where they stayed and took the general's picture with Sally Poker on one side of him and John Wesley on the other. The general, who had had his picture taken with beautiful girls, didn't think much of this. He had forgotten precisely what kind of event this was he was going to attend, but he remembered that he was to wear his uniform and carry the sword. On the morning of the graduation, Sally Poker had to line up in the academic procession with the B.S.'s in elementary education, and she couldn't see to getting him on the stage herself. But John Wesley, a fat, blonde boy of ten with an executive expression, guaranteed to take care of everything. She came in her academic gown to the hotel and dressed the old man in his uniform. He was as frail as a dried spider. Aren't you just thrilled, Papa, she asked. I'm just thrilled to death. Put the sword across my lap, damn you, the old man said, where it'll shine. She put it there and then stood back looking at him. You look just grand, she said. God damn it, the old man said in a slow, monotonous, certain tone as if he were saying it to the beating of his heart. God damn every god damn thing to hell. Now, now, she said, and left happily to join the procession. The graduates were lined up behind the science building, and she found her place just as the line started to move. She had not slept much the night before, and when she had, she had dreamed of the exercises, murmuring, see him, see him, in her sleep, but waking up every time just before she turned her head to look at him behind her. The graduates had to walk three blocks in the hot sun in their black wool robes. And as she plodded stolidly along, she thought that if anyone considered this academic procession something impressive to behold, they need only wait until they saw that old general in his courageous gray and that clean young Boy Scout stoutly wheeling his chair across the stage with the sunlight catching the sword. She imagined that John Wesley had the old man ready now behind the stage. The black procession wound its way up the two blocks and started on the main walk leading to the auditorium. The visitors stood on the grass picking out their graduates. Men were pushing back their hats and wiping their foreheads, and women were lifting their dresses slightly from the shoulders to keep them from sticking to their backs. The graduates in the heavy robes looked as if the last beads of ignorance were being sweated out of them. The sun blazed off the fenders of automobiles and beat from the columns of the buildings and pulled the eye from one spot of glare to another. It pulled Sally Pokers toward the big red Coca-Cola machine that had been set up by the side of the auditorium. Here she saw the general parked, scowling and hatless in his chair in the blazing sun, while John Wesley, his blouse loose behind, his hip and cheek pressed to the red machine, was drinking a Coca-Cola. She broke from the line and galloped to them and snatched the bottle away. She shook the boy and thrust in his blouse and put the hat on the old man's head. Now get him in there, she said, pointing one rigid finger to the side door of the building. For his part, the general felt as if there were a little hole beginning to widen in the top of his head. The boy wheeled him rapidly down a walk and up a ramp and into a building and bumped him over the stage entrance and into position where he had been told, and the general glared in front of him at heads that all seemed to flow together and eyes that moved from one face to another. Several figures in black robes came and picked up his hand and shook it. A black procession was flowing up each aisle and forming to stately music in a pool in front of him. The music seemed to be entering his head through the little hole, and he thought for a second that the procession would try to enter it too. He didn't know what procession this was, but there was something familiar about it. It must be familiar to him since it had come to meet him, but he didn't like a black procession. Any procession that came to meet him, he thought irritably, ought to have floats with beautiful girls on them like the floats before the premie. It must be something connected with history like they were always having. He had no use for any of it. What happened then wasn't anything to a man living now, and he was living now. When all the procession had flowed into the black pool, a black figure began orating in front of it. The figure was telling something about history, and the general made up his mind he wouldn't listen. But the words kept seeping in through the little hole in his head. He heard his own name mentioned, and his chair was shuttled forward roughly, and the Boy Scout took a big bow. They called his name, and the fat brat bowed, too. God damn you, the old man tried to say, get out of my way, I can stand up. But he was jerked back again before he could get up and take the bow. He supposed the noise they made was for him. If he was over, he didn't intend to listen to any more of it. If it hadn't been for the little hole in the top of his head, none of the words would have got to him. He thought of putting his finger up there into the hole to block them. But the hole was a little wider than his finger, and it felt as if it were getting deeper. Another black robe had taken the place of the first one and was talking now. And he heard his name mentioned again, but they were not talking about him. They were still talking about history. If we forget our past, the speaker was saying, we won't remember our future, and it will be as well, for we won't have one. The general heard some of these words gradually. He had forgotten history, and he didn't intend to remember it again. He had forgotten the name and face of his wife, and the names and faces of his children, or even if he had a wife and children. And he had forgotten the names of places, and the places themselves, and what happened at them. He was considerably irked by the hole in his head. He had not expected to have a hole in his head at this event. It was the slow, black music that had put it there. And though most of the music had stopped outside, there was still a little of it in the hole going deeper and moving around in his thoughts, letting the words he heard into the dark places of his brain. He heard the words Chickamauga, Shiloh, Johnson, Lee, and he knew he was inspiring all these words that meant nothing to him. He wondered if he had been a general at Chickamauga or at Lee. Instead, the old words began to stir in his head as if they were trying to wrench themselves out of place and come to life. There was a long finger of music in the general's head probing various spots that were words, letting in a little light on the words and helping them to live. The words began to come toward him, and he said, "'Damn it, I ain't going to have it,' and he started edging backwards to get out of the way. Then he saw the figure in the black robe sit down, and there was a noise, and the black pool in front of him began to rumble and to flow toward him from either side to the black slow music, and he said, "'Stop, damn it!' I can't do but one thing at a time. He couldn't protect himself from the words and attend to the procession, too, and the words were coming at him fast. He felt that he was running backwards, and the words were coming at him like musket fire, just escaping him but getting nearer and nearer. He turned around and began to run as fast as he could, but he found himself running toward the words. He was running into a regular volley of them and meeting them with quick curses. As the music swelled toward him, the entire past opened up on him out of nowhere, and he felt his body riddled in a hundred places with sharp stabs of pain, and he fell down, returning a curse for every hit. He saw his wife's narrow face looking at him critically through her round gold-rimmed glasses. He saw one of his squinting, bald-headed sons, and his mother ran toward him with an anxious look. Then another succession of places, Chickamauga, Shiloh, Marthasville, rushed at him as if the past were the only future now, and he had to endure it. Then suddenly he saw that black procession was almost on him. He recognized it, for it had been dogging all his days. He made such a desperate effort to see over it and find out what comes after the past that his hand clenched the sword until the blade touched bone. The graduates were crossing the stage in a long file to receive their scrolls and shake the president's hand. As Sally Poker, who was near the end, crossed, she glanced at the general and saw him sitting fixed and fierce, his eyes wide open, and she turned her head forward again and held it a perceptible degree higher and received her scroll. Once it was all over and she was out of the auditorium in the sun again, she located her kin and they waited together on a bench in the shade for John Wesley to wheel the old man out. That crafty scout had bumped him out the back way and rolled him at high speed down a flagstone path and was waiting now, with the corpse, in the long line at the Coca-Cola machine. Thanks for listening in to podcast number four, This is Joe Weber saying so long from the Voice of the Arts.